morning, everybody. I want to ask if you would please pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word, that you would encourage us by it, that you would challenge us as a result of it, and that you would continue by the power of your spirit to transform us into the likeness of your son. We pray for the sake of your glory. Amen. There is a great lie that is told today. And it's compelling. We want to believe it. But deep down inside, we know where it might lead. It's a strong lie. It's become one of the prevailing views of our culture. It is the lie that says that you should embrace your urges, your desires, your whims under the banner of freedom, regardless of where they come from or where they might lead you to. This lie tells you that the highest version of yourself is found when you embrace these desires. Self-actualization is the goal, but this lie often ignores or intentionally shields you from the potential negative consequences of such an embrace. But the truth is that there is a battle that is happening inside each and every one of us. An ongoing battle of competing desires. A battle that points to the thing that we might want right now versus the person that we want to become. And sometimes those two things, the thing that we want right now and the person that we want to become, sometimes they align together, but sometimes they do not. And for the Christian, this battle is a spiritual battle. And it's a practical battle. The battle is related to slavery and freedom. A battle that's related to the old life and to the new life. And how we engage in that battle will help us understand how to grow into the person that you want to become. And I say it that way very intentionally, growing into the person that you want to become. Because I believe that the very nature that you're here this morning is related to that. You want more than you already have. You want to grow in a relationship with God. You want growth in your personal life. You want deeper spiritual lives. And when God saves you through faith in his son Jesus to forgive you of your sins, he changes your heart and your desires. He makes those things part of your want. (laughs) And he changes the type of person you want to become. And so this battle that's described in this exhortation of how to grow in this way is found in Galatians chapter 5. And so I want to ask you to grab a Bible if you've yet to open a Bible yet with me. Find Galatians chapter 5, and today we're going to read from verse 16 through 26. If you don't have your copy of the scriptures, grab the pew Bible in front of you. 
Let's find on page 975. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16, says this. Paul writes, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. How would you describe the characteristics of the person that you want to be? I wonder how often you think about that. There's a battle that's happening inside of each and every Christian. And the battle is described as a battle of two different natures that have competing desires against each other. And we see that right away in verse 17. Look at it with me. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. There's a civil war that's happening, an internal conflict in the Christian life. Two natures, the flesh, which refers to our sinful desires in the ongoing human state, and the spirit, which of course refers to the Holy Spirit of God that takes up residence in all of those who call Jesus their Lord and Savior. Two natures, and they are at war. And if you're here today and you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you can't really expect to have this kind of battle. Your life is driven by the flesh, with the elements of maybe your conscience being pricked here and there by God's revelation or his common grace. But the battle's not the same for you, because the Holy Spirit doesn't take up residence and indwell those who haven't put their faith in Christ. But for those of you who are Christians, this battle is raging. And you might think to yourself, well, why doesn't the Spirit just completely drive out all of the flesh? Why can't I be completely driven by the Spirit in my life? And that will be the case someday, but it's not just yet. Because your sanctification is not complete. 
because you've not yet reached glory, because you live in a sinful world and you yourself struggle with sin. But the Spirit is battling on your behalf to transform you from the inside out. Paul describes this battle in a variety of places in the New Testament. Romans chapter 7 is one such place. He uses very similar terms. This is what he says in verse 22 of Romans 7. He says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's an internal civil war that's happening. And it's almost like for the Christian, for our mind, at moments we have what's called the Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> you know what the Stockholm Syndrome is, right? It's, it's a syndrome that was named after an, an old bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, in which the robber held captive a bunch of people in the bank, and by the end of the standoff, the captives were actually defending the captor instead of wanting to be rescued. For the Christian, sometimes we function under this Stockholm-type Sweden where we say, no, 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 I want to defend the sinful ways of my flesh and excuse them or embrace them, even though they are the very things that are holding me captive. (laughs) And verse 17 points us to the fact of where point of this battle is occurring. It's occurring in the place of desire. And the word here for desire is interesting. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Some of your older translations of the Bible might refer to this as the lusts of the flesh, right? Now, I don't know that that word is the most helpful today because lust has almost an explicitly sexual connotation today. But desire is helpful, and even more pointedly, over-desire is what he's getting to here. And this tells us how the flesh works. Yes, your sinful flesh wants to disobey God, but how it disobeys God is very often through over-desire. Yes, we desire bad things sometimes, but we actually also over-desire good things. Things that when engaged with properly or in healthy margin, things that are really great gifts from God. But when pursued with over-desire, <laughs> become sinful, become destructive. And this happens because the flesh wants to gratify itself. It has an insatiable desire for self-gratification. And so David Paulson puts it this way. He says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary of the Old Testament word for our drift away from God, then the New Testament summary word for that same drift is desire. <laughs> the New Testament seems to merge the idea of idolatry and this concept of inordinate life-ruling desires. Lust and craving and yearning and greedy demand. And the reason why we act based on these desires is that our sinful nature prompts us to gratify itself. We become the reason for 
seeking fulfillment. We become the savior. We become the ones that thinks that we can provide for our basic needs instead of relying on the creator God who provides for our most fundamental needs and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus who gives us our most fundamental spiritual needs. And so Paul goes on to describe what the outworkings of this battle tends to look like. He describes the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And often when you see a long list like this in Galatians chapter 5 of the sins of the flesh or the works of the flesh, immediately some of our hearts and our minds kind of step back and say, oh no, here's another long list. The do's and the don'ts. The things we can't do and the things that we're supposed to do. I suppose that's one way you could look at it. But what Paul is really getting toward here is a description of how you know who's winning this battle within you. And so let's look at the list together. The list is a long list, and you could probably divide it into four categories. Four categories of good things, but when distorted with over-desire, become sinful things. Category of sex... Religion, relationships, and consumption. Four good things. Four things that, when applied with the right desire, are glorifying to God. But when, de- when applied with over-desire, become sinful. And so, sex. He gives us three things. Sexual immorality. The word for that's porneia. We know what that means. Sexual immorality refers to sex outside of marriage. Impurity. Impurity is unnatural sexual practices. And sensuality or debauchery is uncontrolled sexual practices. From there he moves to religion. Idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is simply taking a false god and putting it in the place of the one true god as the one for our greatest affections and worship and desire and fidelity. And sorcery, of course, refers to spiritual practices that attempt to conjure up spiritual works based on the occult. The next category is relationships. And there's eight listed there. You might divide them into two categories. Destructive attitudes and relationships. Destructive actions. So the attitudes, enmity, strife, jealousy, and envy. And how about the destructive actions? Rivalries, dissension, division, and fits of anger. And the last two fall under the category of consumption. Drunkenness, we know what that is, and orgies. Probably not referring to things of sexual nature, but referring to carousing or binge drinking. (laughs) The guy that goes on the bender for the weekend. And there's a stern warning that's attached to these. He says, if you do these things, I warn you, you will not inherit the kingdom. That is not saying that if you sin, or if you have lapses into these things and then repent, you will not inherit the kingdom. I mean, after all, the whole message of Galatians is 
that message of God's grace, that works aren't going to save you, that what you do or what you do not do are not the thing that gets you in with God, but rather it's your faith in the person of Jesus and his work on your behalf. So if you find yourself kind of dabbling in and out or struggling with the sins on this list, the answer for you is, is very plainly clear. <laughs> Turn from it right now. Repent. Seek the very forgiveness that God offers you through Jesus. And it will be given to you. But what Paul is referring to with these things is if these are the common feature of your life, in the categories of sex or religion or relationships or consumption, if they're unchecked characteristics of you, if there's no conviction or movement to fight against them, then it's an indication of who's winning the battle on the inside. And it is the flesh. But for the Christian, that battle rages. And verse 17 reminds us, these things keep you from doing what you want to do. (laughs) Now, that's striking to me. I, I thought a lot about that. Why does he say it that way? It seems kind of weird, doesn't it? I mean, the lists like this are typically designed to tell you not to do the things that you want to do. Don't do that. You want to do that. Don't do that. You want to do that. I know you want to do that. Definitely not that one. But in fact, Paul is saying that just the opposite is true. These things look like they might be the things that you want, but they will not ultimately lead you into the person you want to become. They keep you from becoming that person. And so do not succumb to them. And we'll talk about how in just a moment. But first, let's look at the inverse. Consider with me the marks of the Holy Spirit in the one who's leading your life. They're called fruit of the Spirit because they taste sweet. And because the Spirit grows them in you slowly and steadily throughout time. You don't see these fruit immediately in your life, nor do you see all of them upon your conversion. But as you consider days and weeks, months and years of following Jesus, days and weeks and months and years of the internal battle between spirit and flesh, you see the spirit displaying himself as victorious in these ways. These are the marks of the person you want to be. (laughs) Nobody looks at this list and says, I don't want that. Every single person, Christian or non-Christian, looks at a list like that and says, these things are good. I want to be that type of person. And so what are they? What are the fruit of the Spirit? Well, we can divide them into three categories. The first, we might call general Virtues, Christian virtues, love, joy, and peace. And these are directed to God. They constitute our attitudes and they reflect of how we live with God. If your greatest purpose, your greatest desire, your ultimate hope, your chief joy is in Him, then it's going to show in how you live. The Christian is one who loves God above all else, who finds joy deep-rooted joy that supersedes happiness in God above all else. 
and experiences peace with God as the greatest type of peace, then that leads to all kinds of other peace that you have throughout your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I really struggle if I am in a place of conflict or strife with people around me for any ongoing distance or any ongoing amount of time. Um, it just chews away at my insides. If my wife and I have a disagreement, um, I want to be trying to reconcile that as fast as I possibly can because it just eats at me. And it is baffling to me that some people can live with that type of ongoing strife for days or weeks or years with the eternal God of the universe. The relationship that is infinitely more important than any of our human relationships and that some of us know that we're living in that type of strife and that there is no movement to find peace. But this is the great news of the gospel. Jesus says, peace I give to you, peace I leave with you. It's not my peace. Don't let your hearts be troubled. (laughs) Peace with God. The next three virtues you might call as social virtues or outward virtues. They're others-centered in their focus. Patience, kindness, and goodness. Patience is obviously that long-suffering with those who annoy you, those who disappoint you, or those who even persecute you. Kindness is a temperament toward other people. And goodness refers to the quality of your words and your deeds. I think of the young father who's in a supermarket pushing a shopping cart with his little son who was strapped in the front seat. The boy was fussing, irritable, and crying. It's the story of my life. And the other shoppers gave the pair a wide berth because the child would pull cans off the shelf and he would throw them out of the cart. And as they went throughout the store, up and down the aisles, the father seemed very calm and he continued down each aisle and he murmured gently to himself, Easy now, Donald. Keep calm, Donald. Steady boy. It's all right, Donald. And a mother who was passing by noticed the interaction by, between the father and, and was greatly impressed at his patient attitude. And so she stopped him and she said, Wow, you certainly know how to speak to an upset child quietly and gently. And then bending down to the little boy, she said, What seems to be the trouble, Donald? Oh no, said the father. He's Henry. I'm Donald. Patience, kindness, goodness. Internal virtues displayed as fruit in our interaction with those around us. The last three we might call virtues of the self or dispositional virtues. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These might be some of the highest compliments that you can receive in life. 
faithfulness is consistency and reliability. And all of these virtues are worth noting and of great value. But if somebody calls you faithful, wow, that has to be one of the highest compliments you can receive. Gentleness is this characteristic of meekness and humility. And self-control, of course, is the mastery over yourself and your desires in favor of what you know to be true and right and good. They're called fruit of the Spirit because they grow, and the Spirit is the one who is doing that work in your life. And this work takes time. And that time might be a source of great frustration for some of us. But think about it this way. Imagine you're back in the grocery store with little Henry in the cart in front of you. And you're walking down the cereal aisle and you, the next thing on your list is pancake syrup. And so you go down that aisle and you look up onto the top shelf and you see that small bottle that costs $10 with the big label that says pure maple syrup. And you sigh, and you think to yourself for a moment, and then you reach for the $3 alternative called Hungry Jack. When it comes to syrup, there's a reason why the real stuff is very pricey, and why the imitation isn't. Through a slow and painstaking process, the art of maple sugaring takes large quantities of essentially useless liquid and transforms it into a substance that is worth stretching your budget for because there is absolutely nothing like pure maple syrup. With a metal tube called a spile, maple trees are tapped in multiple places and on the edge of each spile is hung a bucket. And over the course of days, the tree drains some of its sap, which comes out like clear liquid. It looks like water and has just a very faint sweetness to it. On a good day, 50 trees might yield 30 to 40 gallons of sap. And as the buckets are collected, they're emptied into large kettles and they're put over an open fire in what's called a sugaring house. And the sap comes to a slow boil. And as it boils over the course of many hours, the water content is reduced and the sugar is concentrated. And hours later, it develops this rich flavor and this golden brown color. It's then strained multiple times to remove impurities. It's reheated and bottled and grated for quality. And at the end of all of that, 30 to 40 gallons of sap produces just one gallon of maple syrup. And that's why it's so expensive. When you came to Christ, like raw, unfinished sap, you could have been tossed aside as worthless. But God not only changed your legal status before him, by justifying you through faith in his son. But he knew what he could make of us. He sought us and he found us. His spirit is transforming us into something precious and sweet and useful. And the long and often painful refining process brings forth a pure and genuine disciple that is very easily distinguished 
from the cheap, hungry jack alternative. That's what happens in this battle. And it's a powerful description when you begin to think about the internal desires of you and the fruit that starts to come out. But what are you supposed to do about it? What is your part in growing into this person that you want to become? I mean, after all, God does the work, right? The cross is sufficient. His grace is enough. Works don't save us. We have freedom in Christ. All of these are great themes of the book of Galatians. But so what is left for you to do? Well, Paul leaves us with two things. Two things that lead us to the way of victory in this battle. And thus growing into the person that you want to be. Your part in this victory is found in the exhortations to walk in the spirit and to mortify the flesh. First, let's look at walking in the spirit. Verse 16, Paul says, I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Walk, live by, keep in step with the spirit. That's how you grow, and that's how fruit is produced in you. But it's interesting that this is sort of the main thrust, the main idea of this passage. The thing that's commanded of you is to walk, to live by, to grow in the Spirit. But it doesn't tell us exactly what it is to do that. What does that precisely mean? But when you consider the fruit... When you think about what it means to walk in something, I think what comes forth as the impression is that this is some sort of family resemblance. One scholar said it this way. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are, it seems to me, largely fruits sustained by sustained interaction with God. Just like your child picks up traits more or less by simply dwelling in the presence of her parents, So the Christian develops tender-heartedness and compassion and humility and forgiveness and joy and hope through fellowship with the Holy Spirit. That is, by dwelling in the presence of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And this means, to a very large extent, living in a community of serious believers. So what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I think these are some of the very basic things that it means. Going through your life, spending time with God and learning from him. Exercising ongoing faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Resting in the sufficiency of God's grace for you. Seeking God in words, through his word and through prayer. Obeying what God tells you to do in Scripture. I love the old saying that the fruit of the Spirit grows in the garden of obedience. And some of us have learned that the hard way. And then worshiping God with a church community consistently. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Nothing magical, nothing mystical. The simple and ongoing ordinary means of God for his people. 
The second thing that we're told to do, the thing that we do, is to mortify the flesh. Now, mortification isn't a word that we use very often today. It simply means to shame or to suppress our desires, or even to kill them. This is the opposite of the self-indulgent secular humanism of our time. It is the exact opposite. This says when you have a desire or an urge, you need to consider where it comes from. And once you consider where it comes from, then you know what to do. And if it's coming from the flesh, then you need to kill it. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, earlier in the book, we see that we've been crucified with Christ. Remember that? Galatians 2.20, you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So there's a sense in which you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him, you're crucified with him. This is something that happens to you. But here, there's a sense in which we participate in the ongoing self-mortification or killing of sin. And the term's graphic. It's not casual in its approach. A casual approach to your sin isn't going to do. An ongoing excuse for why that sin exists in your life isn't going to suffice. When you are backed into the corner... And your flesh has you up against the wall. And temptation is before you. There is but one of two options. You either succumb to the temptation of your flesh or you kill it. And so Paul says, kill it. Nail it to the cross and never let it return. Because if you don't, the consequences are serious. In his famous work, The Mortification of Sin, Puritan John Owen says this. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. (laughs) Be killing sin or it will be killing you. (laughs) And so what are the big sin struggles in your life? Most of us struggle with a repeated few or a pattern. I think that's common to the human experience. Satan knows your weak areas. And the temptation of your flesh is ever before you. What are those areas for you? I want to ask you to do two things today. And the first is to consider that question very carefully. And when you think about what that area is, kill it. Don't excuse it any longer. Don't allow for it to fester. Because it could be killing you. (laughs) Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll display the fruit of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll become 
the person you truly want to become. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll grow into the person you truly want to become. That's what Paul is getting at here. There's freedom in the over-desire of the Spirit. Against such things, there's no law. (laughs) I wonder if you ever had a small tree that you purchased from a garden center, and as you planted it, a tag was attached to one of the branches with one of those small little metal wires. And as the tree began to grow and the branches began to grow, the wire begins to cut into the tree. And you only notice that it's there because the leaves are not flourishing on that tree, on that branch, to the extent that they are on the other branch. And so, you remove the wire. And in a few days, life was flowing to such an extent that the branch began to flower again. Soon the marks of the wire, the scars of its existence were covered over with growth. Some of us here today might be in danger of withering because of the constrictions or the wire of sin. And if you will return to abiding in Christ, to the place of Christ, you will discover that he will begin to work through you again. Once more, you will demonstrate that abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit is the sure condition of faithfulness. You'll keep growing again into what you want to become. You'll do the things that you want to do by the very grace of God. You'll become the one that you hope to be. And it will be evident to all. Walk in the spirit and you will grow into the person you truly want to become. I want to ask you to do two things. The first I've asked you. To consider the way that you need to mortify or to kill sin in your life. And kill it. (laughs) And secondly, to think about a person or some people around you, family member, friend, member of our congregation who's a Christian. And think about the fruit of the Spirit and the ways that you see the Spirit of God winning the battle in them that is displayed by fruit. And tell them about it. Simply tell them, I see the fruit of the Spirit in you in these types of ways. Walk in the Spirit, friends, and you're going to grow. You're going to grow into the person that you truly want to become. Let's pray and thank God for that reality. Lord, you're so kind to us to warn us and to encourage us. We trust in the work of the Spirit in the life of every person who knows you. Because we know that the same Holy Spirit of God that rose the Lord Jesus from the dead is the one who works out this battle within us to cleanse us and purify us and grow us. We trust you. We give you thanks and praise. And we long for the day when our flesh and those desires are eradicated completely. Hasten that day. Hasten that day. Amen.